Hello, everyone. I'm Abhijat Saraswath, and you're listening to the Fringe Legal Podcast. This is a show where I discuss the future of the legal profession with practitioners, thinkers, and innovators. The future is, of course, a topic that's becoming more important than ever, especially in these turbulent times. And I do hope you're all keeping well and safe. Hello, and welcome to the Fringe Legal Podcast. Today, I am joined by Chrissy Wolf. Chrissy is a solicitor at Urban Mitchell. She's the founder of Law and Broader, the solicitor of the year 2019, woman of the year 2019, a legal blogger, mentor, a geek, and so much more. And we'll dig into quite a few of those things. Uh, Chrissy, welcome. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, no, my, my pleasure. So you you have quite a few things that you do. So I guess the the starting point today should be a good one, which is how did you how did you get involved in becoming a solicitor and having all of your other enterprises? What's your story? So I've had quite a convoluted history. Definitely not uh, your normal straightforward story into law. So I was actually home educated when I was younger. So I didn't go through the normal primary, secondary school process. So I was home educated by my mum, and then went to school quite quite late in life to take my A levels, which didn't go so well. Which isn't a great starting point for a career in law. So I had to work pretty hard actually to even get into a uni. And I did when I went to uni. I actually did biology as my undergraduate degree. So nothing law related at all. I actually wanted to be a vet initially. I'm I'm not a born and bred lawyer. It's definitely something that I developed and interested later in life. So once I was coming to the end of my biology degree, I, I looked at options for what to do next. I'd always been interested in what careers in law looked like. So I did a bit more research about different types of law and I definitely was leaning towards the more science-based types of law. So kind of either intellectual property and patents or towards the medical and personal injury side. And I did a bit of work experience in both and just really found that I really enjoyed the, the personal injury and clinical negligence type work. So I pretty much set myself on that career path and moving towards firms that practiced in those areas. So I did my law conversion course at University of Law and then went on to study my LPC there as well. And I applied largely to personal injury and medical negligence firms for training contracts Mm -hmm. and was lucky enough to secure one with with Mitchell, which was great because that was my first choice of firm because it's the best firm in the UK really for personal injury and medical negligence work. So I was really pleased to secure a training contract there. And that started in 2013, qualified in 2015 into actually not a pure medical negligence department into something called international serious injury. So Mm -hmm. this is all people who are injured, but with a cross-border element. So there has to be some kind of conflict of law, basically. So either people who are from England or have been in, and have been injured abroad, injured abroad, or people who are domiciled in foreign countries and have been injured here. So there's always a cross-border element between England and uh, the law of another country, which is is quite interesting. And I just found that really fascinating, and it was uh, a really cutting-edge area of law. So I found that really interesting while I was doing that during my training contract, and ended up 
qualifying there and that's that's where I still am uh, quite a few years later almost five years later uh, <laughs> wow. I'm still there and then and before we go into your other your other ventures uh, just just a couple of questions on that so and so actually I didn't realize that you were home educated what was what was yeah. that like <laughs> you're one of three people I know who who have been home educated so I'm always curious to hear about the experiences Oh, really? That's interesting because I've never met anyone else who is home educated. So <laughs> you're, you're ahead common, of me. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's not, it's not common at all, actually. So my, my dad's actually American and my mum's English. So it kind of came about that way because it's a little bit more common in America, I think, than it is in the UK. There was a lot of moving around when I was younger between the US and the UK. And I think my mum was quite conscious not to want to disrupt my education too much by moving me around. So it, it made sense to, to teach me at home and learn that way. And I didn't really know any different until <laughs> I went to school quite a lot later on in life. So it's hard to it's hard to compare it really. But it was a big culture shock when I did go to school later in life. Just so, totally uh, different. At what stage way did you learning. go to school then? At like GCSE levels, which for international yeah, so like just, just before day. yeah. Yeah. So yeah, just before GCSEs. Yeah. Mm. So when I was a teenager, basically. So I missed the whole primary school thing and just, just went straight in at secondary school. Yeah. I did try another couple of schools before then, but basically my first proper experience was, was quite late in life. So it was a definitely a culture shock just from a different, totally different right. style of learning in a classroom environment as that's not really how, how we did it at home. We were quite kind of practical and hands-on and, you know, did a lot of outings to learn that way rather than sure. sitting in a classroom environment. So very, very different. Um, and, I, and I guess like and, being surrounded by all of these other students as well, right, which is probably, and I, again, I don't know, I know nothing about homeschooling. So, but just, I assume it's just sort of you and your mom who's teaching you. So going from there to a class full of ex, ex other students must be quite, quite a difference, especially when you're a teenager. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was very different. I think being just being with around people my own age was very different as well because that was totally different to the one one on one experience with my mum. Being in a classroom full of full of kids all my own age was took a lot of getting used to, I think, and also trying to learn in that environment, in a group environment rather than being one on one where you can always make sure that you understand everything yeah. um, and go through everything. I think in a classroom environment it, it all went over my head quite easily. Actually I think that is probably why I struggled with my A level because I'd always done quite well in in my exams up till that point but I think that that whole situation threw me quite a lot Um, so which kind of put me off my studying a little bit so but luckily I managed to make it up in my degree so there's only one one blip at a level and then yeah made it back up in in my degree results so yeah but it's that that blip is one that haunted me when I was applying for a career in law and it's not a great start to have very poor a levels when you're trying to go into a, a career which is very academic focused so yeah. definitely and created some hurdles for me. Sure. And so before we do talk about how you overcame those hurdles, um, so actually, for, again, for international listeners, just, just for context, A-levels are what you have in the UK before you go to university or college, as it's called in the US here at least. And so you, you studied biology, so not a normal route to law. I'm really glad that you studied biology because I, I studied neuroscience, so a branch of biology, so okay. big fan. <laughs> uh, and then I went into law yeah. as well. So you did the GDL, is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So that's the one year conversion course. So traditional law degree is three years in the UK if you do it as an undergrad. But if you do it as a postgrad, so if you've already got an undergraduate degree, you can convert in one year. 
mm-hmm. uh, which is which is what I did, which yeah. I, I thought was great actually compared to my friends who did a proper law degree or a three-year law degree. Mm. I think the one year suited me a lot better in terms of the teaching style. So I, I'm actually really pleased that I did it that way rather than going for a straight law degree. Yeah, I, I did the same thing. I did a GDL and I, I actually... I wouldn't say I enjoyed the experience at the time, but certainly in hindsight, I think it suited me more than sitting through a three-year law degree would have personally, especially once you've already got an undergraduate, because at that point, at least for me, I had a better understanding of my learning styles. So it just made sense that I could hunker down and just sort of get through things. Yeah. And then, so what was the what was the turning point for you? So what, what turned you towards law after doing biology, zoology, and wanting to be a vet? It was actually a conversation with my careers advisor, funnily enough. I got I was coming to the end of my biology degree mm. and I'd always planned that I was gonna go and do my vet science degree after that. I, I saw my biology degree as a stepping stone into that, but by the time I'd been at uni for, for four years actually as a, as an undergraduate, I was kind of leaning away from then spending another three or four years, which is what it would have taken to do mm-hmm. my vet science degree on top of that. So I was at a bit of a crossroads really because I really had never wanted to do anything else. So mm-hmm. I actually went to my career advisor at uni and said, right, you know, this is what I'm doing. These are my skill sets. What, what kind of things do people do with biology degrees? And he sort of suggested right. research and teaching and neither of those things really appealed to me. And I think, I think law was the third biggest or most popular subject <laughs> area that people go into the biology degree, which was totally bizarre to me. I didn't, didn't see that coming actually. But when I did a little bit more looking into it, initially it didn't sound like it was for me. I thought, oh, it's contracts and it's lots of hours inside mm-hmm. stuffy offices. You know, it's not for me. I want it to be a large animal vet you know, outside of the country somewhere. I thought this is so totally different to what I want to do that this couldn't possibly suit me. But when I started looking at the different types of law, the medical side really yeah. interested me, actually, particularly the, the clinical negligence side, because it, it's so it's so medical, it's so technical, especially on the claimant, the claimant side, which mm-hmm. is what I do. You know, you have to review medical records, you instruct medical experts, you read really technical medical reports. And, you know, it, it really is almost like being a doctor in, in some ways. You have to really get into the medical side of it. So I thought, actually, you know what? I think I would, I think I would really enjoy this, actually. And then it kind of went from there. Actually, I just got some work experience and started trying to find out as much as I could about medical negligence and what it was like in the firms that were mainly practicing in medical negligence work. And that's how I found Erwin Mitchell and ultimately ended up there. It took it took a while. I didn't get through my second round of application, but I did. I did the second time round. I was. Uh, persistent because I, I really wanted to work there. So I, I, I did get there despite some hurdles with the A-levels and, and things sure. initially. So, yeah. yeah. And yeah, and that's awesome. And I, I guess that leads us to the, the other things that you do, because a lot, I know a big part of that is helping students and others actually break into the legal profession. So yeah, tell us a yeah. bit more about Law and Broader and, you know, and, and basically your, your, I guess your other enterprises there. Yeah, my yeah, my my side hustle, as I sometimes call it, <laughs> um, law and broader. Yeah, so a couple of years ago, so a couple of years after I qualified, I was doing a lot of mentoring, sort of face-to-face mentoring of students who were coming through the process, trying to become lawyers because I overcame quite a few hurdles and I really wanted to give back some of my experiences and advice from what I learned to help other people who were in similar positions because it is an incredibly competitive mm-hmm. career. It's so hard to get into. And I think a lot of people 
who would be talented lawyers are sometimes put off because of how competitive and difficult it is. And they think they don't have the right criteria. They're not cut out for it. They don't have good enough A-levels. Loads of reasons why people choose not to do it, mm-hmm. uh, who, who should, I think. So I really wanted to, to try and help people who were in that position or feeling frustrated about the fact that they weren't progressing or weren't getting a training yeah. contract, um, which is what you need in the UK um, to progress into a career in law qualify as a solicitor. You need to secure this infamous training contract, mm-hmm. as, as any UK lawyer will, will know. So uh, I was doing a lot of face-to-face mentoring and I actually had a good friend who was a pro YouTuber, nothing to do with law. She's actually a Disney, a Disney vlogger, Um, but she was using this platform and I, yeah, because it's completely different, but I saw how she was using the platform and how much engagement she was getting and, you know, and had a chat with her about it. And I kind of thought maybe I can, I can use this to expand on my mentoring really, because I'd love to mentor loads and loads more people, but there just aren't enough hours in the day with my day job to to -hmm. face-to-face mentor any more people and actually make sure that I'm giving them what they need. So I decided to branch out onto YouTube as a kind of extension of my face-to-face mentoring, really. And I didn't know if it was going to work. There was no one else who was really doing this on Mm. YouTube, to be honest. I had a look and thought, "Mm, I don't know if this is going to work because there doesn't seem to be any market for it whatsoever. So maybe it's just because no one's interested. Uh, So I, I just started putting a few videos out and a few people picked up. I got in touch with my old lecturers at university mm-hmm. and said, this is what I'm doing. If you think any students would benefit from it, then then let them know. And they started circulating it. And it just it just got kind of more and more traction, really. And it did seem to be pretty well received by students who were going through the process and seemed to identify mm-hmm. with me a little bit in my struggle. So I did a whole range of things on there, really. So First of all, sort of help with application strategy, help with interview practice, how to get work experience. And then I started doing news updates to help with commercial awareness. So I was talking about big stories in the news and how those impacted on law firms and and things that I really struggled with understanding when I was going through university, really, because I think it's quite hard when you're a student to really understand what the of what the significance of news stories is in the legal market when you're not in the legal market yet and you don't you know it's hard to process that so I tried to break that down and make that you know more relatable for students so they could understand that and translate that into their application forms I did interviews with other key people in the industry so I could obviously my my knowledge is only limited to to my career path and what I've experienced so I like to have other people in as well to talk about their experiences and give a different viewpoint in a different viewpoint from the perspective of, of I've got barristers on there and I've had judges on there and all different types of people with different legal legal paths. So mm-hmm. I try and keep it varied. And then I, I do the broader side as well, which is a bit of lifestyle, basically anything that's not law that I happen mm-hmm. to be doing. I've got quite a lot of other interests. So it's kind of my, my lawyer life, but the, the non-lawyer side of it, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, um, that makes a lot so of sense. So yeah, it's quite a, it's quite a mix, quite a mix on there, but it, it, it did get pretty well received. Um, I've got, I've got about three, three and a half thousand subscribers now. So, you know, not, 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 not groundbreaking, but it's, it's good. I'm pleased with it considering it's quite a niche market. I'm pleased with with the amount of, of subscribers I've got and the positive feedback is is great. I mean, even if it helps a few people to get training yeah. contracts who otherwise wouldn't have, then it's it's totally worthwhile. So that that's kind of how it started, and then I, I've branched out from then into events and and coaching and things like that. So now I do legal events up and down the country, really, with a focus on helping aspiring lawyers get employment and understand a bit more about the legal marketplace and also right. sort of training junior lawyers about the skill set that they need to succeed in the future and, and things like that. So quite varied. 
Uh, yeah, that's really cool. And I mean, I have to say, it's, <laughs> firstly, putting yourself out there initially when, when you don't know if it's going to be successful or not, and that, which it's difficult, don't, you know, no doubt, uh, but actually then continuing with it, it's, you know, very, very much commendable. So, you know, good on you for continue doing that. And I think actually building up a following of, you know, three and a half thousand people is awesome. Actually, it means that at least you have a, regular audience of you know more than three thousand people every time you're posting something of course not everyone's gonna watch everything but it, it is really really good and i looked at uh, i watched some of the videos i have to be honest i probably watched more of the the law videos than the broader videos yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that, that was that was more of my interest but no it, it's i think it's it is really good and uh, certainly things that you know when you did the video from sort of legal geek and other events and uh, you know, the, the latest one around sort of vacation schemes and so on. I, I think if you are sort of a student or actually even the, the legal geek one, and even if you are within the profession, it's always good to hear another, another perspective. And it's always here to hear, it's good to hear the perspective of someone who is speaking to students or those just about or thinking about entering the profession because, you know, you, you get a good pulse on what kinds of things are they thinking about? What, what's, what's on their mind? How they're actually thinking about you know, when they start working, when they get into this profession, what what would their experience be like? And the one of the things that you mentioned that I highlighted is the commercial awareness aspect of it, of course, making it more relate, relatable to the students, but also you're making it a lot more relatable to people who are within the industry. Because I, I think certainly a lot of people do take for granted how much of this becomes automatic where you read a new story or whatever it might be. And then you start translating it into a certain way from a certain lens. So I think that in itself is really valuable. And certainly we'll, we'll link your, your channel in, in the show notes for sure. So people can check it out. For oh, thank you. And then yeah, talk, talk to me a bit more about the, the coaching aspect of things and what kind of events you're doing as well. I'm curious how, how, how you got into that, because I guess once you have a platform, it's you sort of build on to that. And as you get more people, it's a scalability thing, right? Yeah, so I think off the back of the videos that I was doing on YouTube, I obviously got a lot of questions from students because I put myself out there as someone who's happy to help. And I, you know, say get in contact with me if you have any questions. And then off the back of that, answering a few questions, people started asking for kind of more specific coaching. And, and I started doing that only small levels, really, because I have a day job too, which is quite <laughs> demanding. So, right. you know, I have to be kind of realistic about how much time that I, I've got to do that. And I have to make right. sure that the day job is, is the priority. But then the events as well, which I really enjoy. I've only done a couple so far, but I've got two or three forecasted over the course of this year as well. So the first one I did was a speed speed networking event, which was kind of set up a bit like speed dating. So I got uh, a few of my colleagues in law, various different types of various different facets of the law. So barristers, judges, partners, right. trainees, paralegals, all kinds of different people at different levels working in different types of firms in different practice areas, as, as varied as I possibly could, mm. really. And then and then offered the place equal number of places out to students. And so we had the professionals down one side and the students kind of on rotation right. uh, when the bell rang to speak to everybody because <laughs> I, I think one of the 
one of the daunting things sometimes about networking events, particularly if you're a student, you haven't spent much time doing these things, is you could go to an event, but you don't have the confidence to actually speak to anybody. You, you don't know what to say. You might sit in a corner and actually you don't actually get as much out of it. Whereas I think in an intense environment like that, I wanted to make sure everybody got a chance to speak to everybody sure. and really get something out of it. And I thought that format worked really well for that. And I'm definitely going to do that again. And then the last one I did was an event called Disrupting the Law, which was in conjunction with Birmingham Tech Week. So it was a tech-focused event, a panel event with a few kind of leading people in law tech talking about the impact of law tech on the, you know, the current legal sector and the future, the future of it and the impact on junior lawyers as well and the skill set and, and how it's changing the legal environment really. So that was, that was quite an interesting one as well. And I've got one coming up in London. Which is to do, which is all about upskilling. Mm -hmm. So the skill set, building the skill set that the future lawyer needs effectively, which is a lot broader, I think, than the historic skill set that a lawyer is needed. So it's talking to junior lawyers about what the the required skill set is and how you can build that, particularly if you're an aspiring lawyer, how do you build this skill set that's not necessarily being taught at university and because it's kind of all about building the future lawyer really so i'm looking forward to that yeah Uh, when is that one the upskilling one so that is going to be on the 28th of april and that's that's in london and it's being hosted by alan and overy uh, in conjunction with the Junior Lawyers Division in London as well, the, the London Young Lawyers Group. So that should be, a, should be a great event. I'll be promoting it all over my social channels. So <laughs> if you link them, you can sign up. <laughs> Perfect. No, absolutely. Um, so yeah, a cu- couple of questions off the back of that. And actually before that, what one piece of advice that I got uh, initially in when I was very young in my career around sort of these speed networking type events, at least it worked well for me. Not sure if it will work for other people. If you are in these kind of events, uh, a good strategy strategy certainly is because I think one of especially if this is the first event or the first two or three and you might be some, somewhat introverted you might struggle actually to think of what do you talk about the other person uh, so one of the strategies was go through the first one and then actually you can utilize something that the other person so let's say it's a barrister or a judge opposite you uh, they might have said that was particularly thought-provoking Use that mm-hmm. as a point of conversation when you actually go to the very next person. So say, oh, actually, on my previous table, you know, the, the X, Y, Z person mentioned whatever topic that the skills that a future lawyer needs. What are your opinions on that? So again, you're sort of just basically building off the back of the expertise of someone who has probably a lot more knowledge than, than you, but you're getting a diverse set of viewpoints and you can sort of go go forward from there. That helped me at least. Uh, so hopefully it helps other people. Yeah, uh- Absolutely. Yeah, it's definitely, I, I do think that networking events are a hard one, particularly if you haven't been to one before and you can right. sometimes find that there are people who are much more confident who go over and sort of monopolize the people you want to speak to. And then, right. that, you know, the whole night can go by without speaking to anyone. So it can be hard. And that's why I sort of wanted to do the quite intensive speed networking type mm-hmm. setup to make sure that everybody spoke, everybody got something out of it. And it helps you to build up confidence in that situation as well. So the next time you go in your room, room full of people, you know, you've got a bit of experience experience in, in how to, to do how to have that conversation so hopefully hopefully it helped people to to build their sort of skill set in in networking and you know conversational and interpersonal skills as well 
For sure. And I mean, just like anything else. And I mean, I've been doing this podcast for just, just under a year. And I think I'm, I'm, I get nervous before every episode. I'm happy to say that. But just the fact <laughs> that I've done, you know, I've had about 20 or so interviews now, probably a bit more than that now. It just gives me the confidence that, you know what, 20 of them worked out okay. There's no, there's no reason that this one shouldn't. Um, so, you know, just doing more of something generally just builds that confidence and that muscle memory. Yeah, absolutely. I'm still the same with the vlogs. I still get nervous every time I have to shoot a video. I mean, I must have done hundreds by now, but you still get that nervous feeling, even though it's not even in front of an audience. It's just in front of a camera. But I think that's that's natural when you're passionate about something and it's important to you and it means a lot. You always get a little bit nervous about it. So I think that's healthy. Yeah, for sure. And because you want to do a good job. So that's, I'm conscious of time, but I do want to talk about sort of two, two things that you mentioned. So one is... Um, you talked about disrupting the law and, you know, what's, what's to potentially come there. And I'm not going to ask you to protect anything. Don't worry, but it would be good to, and I maybe sort of let's consolidate that with the upskilling piece. So what do you think are some of the skills that you're hearing more about perhaps, or from your perspective uh, are important for a future lawyer? And they could be to do with technology and so on. I know that's certainly a big part of things generally, um, or it could be something completely different because, you know, as you touched on, there is absolutely a massive difference between the expectation and reality when you're at university mm. or college. And then when you join a law firm or certainly any profession, really, I think there are certain, you know, and the, actually the vocational nature of the training contract certainly helps with that. But, you know, what do you think is what's what's becoming more and more important that maybe didn't used to be? Yeah, so a lot of things, I think, I think particularly in the last sort of five years, I think things have changed so much from the point of view of what our clients want from us as lawyers, which is the primary starting point is we've right. got to take care of our clients and we have to provide the services in a way which is attractive to our clients. There's so much competition in, in the current climate that you have to make sure you're providing that excellent level of service. And, and part of that is being able to tailor your service delivery to how your particular client wants it. And I think because the market has changed so mm. much generally, I mean, I think now we do a lot more shopping online. You know, things are delivered by people. People do things via app. People look a lot on social media now for reviews and things like that that we have had to adapt as lawyers to make sure that we are, you know, we're present where our clients are effectively. So I definitely think having a skill in, in, sort of digital marketing and social media is definitely a massive help for marketing services and being able to deliver them in a way that is favorable for clients. I think that's mm. something that wasn't even heard of 10 years ago. I mean, social media, digital marketing, <laughs> those weren't phrases that existed really, were they? I mean, right. maybe, maybe Facebook was just coming in. But yeah, uh, so I definitely think that's a whole new facet um, of skills that were never really thought of amongst lawyers, but now are actually really attractive. I think you're a really attractive candidate if you can use social media. You have a social media following as well. I mean, the bigger your following and the more potential client base mm -hmm. you have, the more connections you have. If you can promote what you're doing online as well, then you're going to attract you're going to attract more and more clients and build a, a better name for yourself, which is is a great asset to have. And I think you touched on technology as well. I mean, we're moving more and more towards the, the tech age. I mean, technology has always been, well, in, in in my career, it's always been present. But I think what we're talking about now is, is really much more sophisticated technology. And we're talking about smart contracts and, you know, artificial intelligence and blockchain, you know, these really, these really sort of sophisticated tech tools, actually, which just never really featured in the legal market, but now are 
becoming more and more prominent. I mean, I, I think I, I think there's probably it's probably utilized less than you would think from the hype that's generated right. by the internet. I think there's a lot of hype around law tech, and I think if you're not in the industry, you, you know, you keep you'd be forgiven for thinking that, you know, there's a lot of robots running around and we all kind of are existing on hoverboards. Uh, we're not. I think we're a long way off. We're a long way off being fully, you know, fully automated. But certainly low levels of automation are, are creeping in. And depending on the type of firm, the type of work area, they're being used to a greater or, or lesser extent. But I definitely think from from the role of a lawyer, when you when you think about lawyers who are junior and coming through the process, the sorts of mm. things that junior lawyers or trainees would have been doing five or 10 years ago as tasks, as trainee tasks, that, that's entirely different now, really, yeah. because a lot of the a lot of the legwork, let's say, a lot of the document review and preparing bundles, all of that is is now greatly assisted by technology. So it's sort of gone to the days where if you're you know, if you're a trainee, you're gonna be shut in a dark room with <laughs> seventeen boxes of files now to go through. That just doesn't happen now. Right. You know, it's all it's all done by automatic document review. Um or or at least you know, in some firms isn't it? It's moving towards that with with most firms, I think. So it, it looks very different now, um, to, to yeah. how it did years ago in terms of the skill set that we need. So now you don't need the skill of reviewing lots and lots of paper documents, but you do need the skill of knowing how to use the automation tool on the computer, right. which does that for you. So I suppose And I think that's, a, you know, certainly on the tech side of things, it's, it's a really good point that we're, we're very far away from some of the hype stuff that you'll be hearing about. And people tend to talk about quite a bit and not, not for any other reason, but, you know, it does take technology time to become mainstream and the, actually uh, one, one of the things that is certainly changing of course it depends on the, the technology that you're talking about but the, the time for something to become uh, widespread is certainly decreasing if you look across the board i mean facebook was founded in 2004 if my memory serves me right and you know yeah. 2020 it, you will be hard pressed to find people that haven't heard of it, right? When you have billions of users, mm. um, that's a significant percentage of the world that's using Facebook or one of their other platforms, right? And it, and it's not just Facebook, yeah. it's things like Instagram and WhatsApp and so on. They're all owned by Facebook. Um, and so now if the things that are bubbling up and sort of getting closer to the surface, so, you know, smart contracts, blockchain and other automation type technologies, AI would be a big, big bundle in there. They are absolutely, by the time a lot of the people who are studying now maybe come into working, they may become probably not a day-to-day -day necessity, but they will start mm. becoming ever more present into their day-to-day -day life. And I think one of the things that's changing, certainly as I speak to law firms, is what they hear from from applicants is because it's not just about uh, the students have to know how to do X, Y, and Z as they go into their the back schemes and so on, but it's also about the law firms providing the tools. So the thing that you said about you know providing technology that assists with some of this grunt work that you used to have to do manually as a junior lawyer, from a law firm perspective, that should no longer be the case because you want that to be one of the offerings to attract the best candidates. Because you know if you have an option to choose between law firm A and B uh, and all things being equal, one of them offers you basically the chance to do more higher level work and spend less time doing the, you know, the, the boring mundane work that can be, that can be at least assisted significantly by technology like document, uh, document review and so on. 
then why wouldn't you choose that firm over the other one? Right. So that yeah, important. yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I think it is about attracting the best candidates because law students are becoming more and more savvy. You know, they they know what they want. It, it's not so much now a, a case of. I mean, there's still a very competitive industry to get into, but for good candidates, they still yeah. have a lot of choice of of where they go. So, as a law firm, you do need to make yourself attractive for junior lawyers coming through the process, and it's also about efficiency and profitability, really. Yeah. I mean, with with the with so many firms investing heavily in tech and automation, those firms are going to be incredibly efficient, and they are, which is going to increase their profit margins as well. And it's also going to be more attractive for clients because clients want to know they're getting the best value for money. Exactly. And yeah. firms which are heavily invested in technology are are going to be more efficient, and they want to know that you know what they're getting for their their, their billable hour and mm. the the price per hour is they're really getting you know the, the most out of that really, and they're not having their lawyer sort of you know. Lock, as I said, locked in a room, reviewing lots of documents <laughs> that technology could be doing. You know, their lawyers providing them with the face-to-face advice and doing, you know, doing the jobs that really require or, or warrant that level of of hourly rate. And I think that does you know, it, it attracts clients as well when they know that a firm is is technologically advanced because you know it encourages that and you know it shows that they know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. They've invested money wisely and they are going to provide an, an efficient service. I think that you know you need to you need to be attracting clients. You need to be attracting the best candidates, particularly in the current climate, which yeah. is so competitive. And there's now all sorts of alternative legal services provider popping up, so that law firms don't have the monopoly on the big clients anymore. There's a lot of choice for clients about where they go to get their services from and how they want those services delivered. Mm-hmm. So as a law firm, you've got to be you've got to be seen to be providing great value for money, great service, and delivering it in a way that your client wants. Because if you're not ticking all of those boxes, there will be someone else who is. Yep. So you've got to be you've got to be forward thinking, I think, in in the current climate to make sure you stay ahead of the game and keep your clients and keep increasing your revenue. Yeah. And, and I guess one of the things, and I'm not sure how much you're able to sort of talk about this here and it's okay if you're not, how, how does all of this sort of factor into your practice, right? So within the international personal injury practice, how are you seeing some of the shifts in, in both the client's attitudes changing and how you and or Urban Mitchell and or Urban Mitchell are sort of servicing those needs? Yeah, so I think I mean we are we know quite we're quite an innovative firm, and we are always taking our clients' feedback into account. In terms, we listen to our clients really carefully about what they want, and we know we're constantly asking them for feedback and adapting our practices accordingly based on on what they want. And I think that's really the key is really making sure that you listen to your clients right. really well and adapt your practices as, as much as you can. I think particularly because I I do claimant personal injury, so I'm I'm not dealing with corporate entities so much and I think if you are in a corporate and commercial then you have to adapt your practice differently because corporate clients want a very different type of service delivered in a very different way Mm -hmm. to a sort of private client a, a consumer if you like and I think you know a good a good a good law firm a good practice will adapt to each different type of client and each different style of client. So I think it's just about having a business model that is as adaptable as possible. And so you can service each of your clients' individual needs, really. And that's, that's what we try and do uh, within Erwin Mitchell is, is make sure we're as flexible and accommodating as possible to, to whatever our clients need. 
Yeah, no, that, that that's really helpful. And I think uh, the key thing that you mentioned there is, you know, you have to be adaptable in there. Unfortunately, uh, there is no silver bullet that's going to work for every different, every practice area. So it has to be slightly different. And it, maybe it is, you know, it's more minor adjustment depending on uh, certainly if you have a individual uh, consumer or if you have a business focused client. Awesome. So I know we're sort of coming up to the top of the hour. So in, I guess in, in summing up the conversations that we talked about uh, quite a lot, actually, one of the, I guess, one of the outstanding questions I had was how do you actually, from you personally, how, how do you manage this? Which is how, how do you, how, how are you spending your time at being a solicitor as well as doing you know, the law and broader and coaching and everything else? How, how does that work for you? What's the balance like? Uh, and then so we can sort of wrap up from there. Yeah, so it's it's a busy life, <laughs> um, but but I enjoy it. I mean, I, I absolutely love what I do, both sides of what I do. I, I'm really passionate about my day job. I worked really hard to get there, mm-hmm. and I I love my clients, and I love what I do on a day to day basis. And and that obviously, you know, obviously I work Monday to Friday at, at my day job. So I pretty much do my day job throughout the week. And then I dedicate my weekends to the other stuff, really, in terms of my law and broader. I mean, I do some stuff in the evenings as well. Sure. But basically, you know, whilst I'm at my working hours, I dedicate that to to my work. I don't have any kind of crossover, really. I mean, I still post on social media and things like that intermittently, but I quite often schedule those as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I can often schedule them in the evening to go throughout the day. So I'm not trying not to distract myself by yeah. checking in throughout the day and I can focus sort of solely on my day job whilst I'm dedicating my, you know, my hours to that and then separate when I'm doing the law and broader stuff the weekend and the evening. Sunday is my vlog day. So I always shoot and edit my videos on a Sunday pretty much. And then they go up on a Monday morning. I try and get a video up once a week, but I need some me time too occasionally. So yeah, I do try and take a break every now and then, go away for a weekend, do a bit of traveling. So, uh, you know, I think I just try and keep as consistently uploading as I can on on YouTube because that helps kind of keep your audience engaged. But, you know, they fully appreciate that I, I've got I, other 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 commitments as well. So I think it's just trying to keep a, a separation really between the two and, and make sure there's no overlap because that's when you can get distracted and both of them suffer. I think if you try and do them both at the same time. So I just try and do them at very separate times to make sure I'm fully engaged in that one thing while I'm doing it. And then the other thing while I'm doing that. So it's just, it's just, you know, being quite, quite strict with that, I think, and making sure you have dedicated time slots because you have to be organized, I think, to, to process that many things. And beginning with those things, you just have to focus on that one thing yeah. while you're doing that one thing and then move on to the next. So I guess time management, uh, good time management skills are necessary. Essential, I would say. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, that, that's very well said. So yeah, we talked about quite a lot today. Uh, we'll put a whole bunch of things on in the show notes. And Chrissy obviously is all over social media. So we'll link to, to her YouTube channel, Law & Broader. I'll link to your uh, LinkedIn profile. Uh, and you can find her under Chrissy Wolf on LinkedIn. Uh, your Twitter as well. See Wolf, uh, Wolf spelled W-O-L-F-E underscore Lab, L-A-B. Thank you so much. It was a really fun conversation. Good to know. That certainly there's a lot of lot of things that actually still there is to learn for everyone who's been in the profession for a while and for people who are just about to or thinking about entering it and and of course I'm I'm sure people can reach out to you directly if they have any questions or uh, certainly if you're a student and they need coaching or any any further information from you. 
Yeah, absolutely right. That'd be great. Thank you so much for having me. No, thank you for coming on. Thank you for listening. And I hope you enjoyed that discussion. Before you go, please share this with one other person and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. This podcast was produced by me, Abhijat Saraswath. Paula Chrysostomu is the manager for the show and Pretty Saraswath is the content strategist. You can listen to all previous episodes and reach out to us at fringelegal.com. Thank you.